Good morning, Forest View. My name is Paul, and if we don't know each other, I'm the pastor of Mission here, and it is my privilege. And, and I was trying to think of what's the right word, and it really is privilege. It's my privilege to be able to continue with you in our Life Together series as we take a long, slow walk through the book of Philippians. If you're like me, you've been in a situation where somebody has been talking to you or describing something new to you, and they've been using words that in their... Um, outside of the context in which they're speaking. You understand the meaning of those words, but within the context, you might not actually understand what those words mean. Uh, let me give an illustration that may help you understand. If you've been following us on social media or get the church emails, you will know that we as a church have taken up the art of beekeeping. Uh, some of us, uh, all of us actually, are amateurs. We're, we're learning this new and if there's an expert beekeeper among you and you haven't revealed yourself to us, please do. We would love to meet you and know you. But right now, we're just kind of staying ahead of the curve. We're learning as we go, which means that we are getting introduced to a bunch of words that we understand the meaning of, except when we understand, when we learn them in, in the context of beekeeping, they become new to us. Words like box or frame or nucleus or brood or royal, or jelly. These words take on new meaning when, when we understand them in the context of beekeeping. And I wonder if the same thing is true for us when we think about the word resurrection. Um, last week we read a passage from Philippians chapter 3, and I'm just going to read it to you again. Uh, Paul says in verses 10 and 11, he says, "...that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In his book on Theology and Spirituality of Paul, Michael Gorman, a theologian, observes that we understand resurrection as a past event. We understand it in that context. We understand resurrection as a future event. Uh, a church that Elizabeth and I were a part of for many years in Edmonton, Bethel Gospel Chapel, where we served, uh, had up at the front of their, um, you know, right behind the speaker, at the very front in, in bold letters, uh, the words, We preach Christ, crucified, risen, coming again. And I think you're going to see a screenshot of that on, on, on the screen there. We preach Christ, crucified, risen, coming again. The, the resurrection of Jesus is central to our faith. What this is telling us uh, reminds them and reminds us as I see it again is that resurrection is central to our belief and central to our faith. And we understand it in its historical context. Every Easter we celebrate resurrection. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And we understand resurrection in a future context. Um, we, we place our hope in the resurrection. Christ is coming again. We are going to be resurrected with him upon his return. The, uh, the future resurrection that we await for brings us great hope at times of suffering, at times of death, during funerals. We say we, 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 uh, we take comfort in the awareness and in the belief and the future hope of the resurrection. But how well do we understand resurrection when it's used in the context of our present reality? Michael Gorman would argue, interestingly, he would say that most importantly, the resurrection life is about life here and now. It is about daily putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, living in his way, understanding that in doing so, 
understanding resurrection in a present reality has implications for our spirituality, it has implications for our ethics, and it, it, and it has implications for our mission. So what I want to do this morning, what I want to do is think about resurrection in the present reality and understand it from these three, uh, in these three areas, how it has implications for our spirituality, our ethics, and our mission. And as we look at each of these individually, I then want to introduce a practice, a spiritual practice that will help us to develop this, uh, this, um, you know, the, this part of our life, to, to develop our spirituality, to, to reflect upon our ethics and upon our mission. So that's where I'm going to take you this morning. I, uh, I hope you're ready for this. I hope you'll continue to join me. Uh, I know you have options. It's easy to walk out, but please, please stay. Please bear with me. So let me first ask this question. So to start, how does understanding resurrection as a present reality have implications for our spirituality? Well, to live the resurrection life means to live with the awareness that the power and life of Christ is within us. If God has raised Christ, then that means that Christ is presently active and powerful in our lives, and he desires to be active and present in our lives. In the rich chapter uh, of 1 Corinthians 15, it's this rich chapter where Paul writes and expounds upon the idea of resurrection. He says uh, uh, early on, he speaks about Christ's own appearance to him, the res when the resurrected Christ appears to him, he says that, uh, you know, talking about Christ, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he says, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was without effect, was not without effect. No, I worked harder than, than them, he says, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What the Apostle Paul is telling us here early on in, the cha in this chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is that he was confronted um, by the res resurrected Jesus and that he allowed Jesus to transform him. So just as Christ was at work in Paul, he desires to be at work in us. And our responsibility is to notice, is to notice how Christ is at work in us, through us and around us. I was listening recently to a podcast uh, by an author named Rob Walker who wrote a book called The Art of Noticing. And as I was listening to this, uh, to this, to this interview, uh, one of the things he said, Rob Walker was saying, is that he teaches, a, he's a professor of design, and he teaches his design students to notice, in particular, to notice the things that other people overlook. And he says this art of noticing is what makes great inventors. It's what makes great entrepreneurs. It's what makes great managers. And if we look at this through a Christian lens, understanding it from a Christian context, I think we can say it is what makes great neighbors. Being a great neighbor 
is of course a Christian ethic. It's a Christian uh, responsibility. It is a part of our spirituality being great neighbors. If you uh, if you've been around uh, Forest Street Church for any length of time, you'll know that we have an outreach ministry called Next Door. It has been uh, in existence for about eight years. And prior to that, as a church, we were involved in some other ministries that we would say have, uh, have led to the development of Next Door. And at the heart of these ministries, um, and at the, at the development of Next Door, we can say that there are three women who practiced the art of noticing. Um, Mina Wahidi, a woman who is the founder of Compassion Society, who we worked alongside of, uh, developed Compassion Society by living in a low-income neighborhood and noticing the needs of her neighbors. Uh, a second person, Heidi Ram, a woman from Compass Point Church, was walking out of a restaurant one day alongside um, alongside the motels at Plains Road, and she was approached by a man asking for change. This man came alongside, asked her for change. I don't know how Heidi responded to that person in that particular moment, but I do know that Heidi began to notice. She began to notice the great need in the motels next to the restaurant, and she began to, uh, to practice the art of noticing. She would drive her car into the parking lot of these motels, park there, and notice the people and she began to pray and she began to ask that the Lord would reveal to her how she should respond to the needs of these people out of that birth the motel ministry out of the motel ministry part you know and the motel ministry became in in uh, one of one of the pieces that formed next door and then of course we have Angie Crichton Angie Crichton is the site manager at next door um, and when next door was was being formed about eight years ago is when we met Angie. Angie was at that time a single mom living with two young children in the townhouse complex behind where Next Door is currently located. When Angie moved into this townhouse complex, she began to notice. She began to notice women uh, walking their kids to school outside her front door. She began to notice the kids playing in the complex. And she began to wonder and she began to ask God how she should respond. And so she opened up her front door. She planted a garden in the front, not in the back, because she felt the need to respond. And she felt the nudge to respond to these people, to this community, and to the needs within her community, because she was practicing the art of noticing. The historical Jesus, resurrected from the dead, was present and active in these three women who took notice to the needs of those around and responded. So if the resurrection life means to live with the awareness that the power and life of Christ is within us, what is our resurrection practice? How can we nurture this spiritual practice of noticing? Well, I want to suggest that we can do prayer walking. Prayer walking uh, through your neighborhoods draws your attention to the needs of the people around you in ways that otherwise is not possible. There are a lot of resources, there are even apps for your phone that can help you with prayer walking. But the one thing that I'll say, whatever you resources or resources you use or don't use, the important thing is that at the end of it, you pause and you ask God to reveal to you what he is prompting, what he is wanting to show you. Is there someone you should call? Is there someone you can help? Is there someone you can pray for? And of course, prayer walking doesn't have to be restricted simply to your neighborhood. Prayer walking is something that uh, you can do around your kid's school. 
and maybe at these difficult times as schools are getting ready to reopen, we should be prayer walking around our schools, praying for our teachers, praying for the administrators, praying for our kids and praying for our families. Prayer walking is something you can do at your workplace. If you are still in a workplace, walking through your workplace, asking God to reveal to you the needs within your workplace. And if your workplace is currently your home office, maybe it's finding creative ways to visualize your workplace, or maybe it's taking a screenshot of your Zoom call and praying over the people who you regularly engage with at work. But the thing is, the idea is to pay attention and to notice what Christ is doing and how you can respond. So to continue, how does this understanding of resurrection as a present reality that is here and now have implications not just for our spirituality but for our ethics? The resurrection is countercultural. The resurrection life is countercultural because it views the body, our physical bodies, as God's temple. As a Christian community, we believe that our bodies belong to God and that God will one day raise our bodies as he did Christ. As such, we offer our bodies to God. In the same way we might say that money belongs to God, and therefore we offer our money to God, we offer our bodies to God. We say that they belong to God. And such a belief is countercultural, and it has implications for how we live our daily lives. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Or in other words, we might as well, if it's not for the resurrection, we might as well live in unadulterated hedonism. However, with resurrection, every bodily activity becomes an opportunity for worship. The famous line from Eric Little rings true here. Eric Little, the Scottish uh, runner um, made famous in the, in the movie The Chariots of Fire, has this wonderful line that you'll recognize where he says, God made me fast. Uh, God made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. A friend of mine on Strava, Strava is, a, is an app that we use for running and cycling. Um, I'm sure many of you use it or are familiar with it. Uh, a friend of mine has on his app the, the, the words, every ride is a holiday. And I love this. I love this because it recognizes that enjoying physical activity is a grace it's a gift from God. Now, of course, God didn't make all of us fast, uh, and not everyone feels pleasure when running or riding a bike or, or even sees a bike ride as a holiday. But God made you in a body, and as you use your body to run or to bike, to walk, to write, to bake, to play the piano, whatever it is, you have an opportunity to worship God and experience his pleasure in how we use our bodies. Yet as we take pleasure in these things, Paul also warns us against being dominated by anything. Speaking specifically about our sexual lives, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with your price, with a price. So glorify God 
in your body. Understanding that our bodies are to be used and enjoyed to glorify God. What is our resurrection practice? Well, I want to suggest the prayer of examine. Richard Foster, in his famous book on prayer, talks about the prayer of examine as being two sides of a door. The examine of consciousness, in which we discover how God has been present to us throughout the day, and would be a great practice uh, related to the earlier, uh, the earlier things that we were talking about, the art of noticing, asking God to help us notice how he has been present with us throughout the day. The one side of the door, the examine of consciousness. The other side of the door, and this is what I really want to talk about, is what he calls the examine of conscience, um, in which we invite Christ to uncover the areas of life that need cleansing and purifying and healing. The examine of conscience, like I said, is what I want to talk about. And so two thoughts on this, the examine of conscious, conscience. First, and this, this, this point is obvious but important, is that we are inviting Christ to examine our lives. If we do our own self-examination, uh, there's the potential that we will either be too critical of ourselves or we'll be too generous to ourselves. We may find that we are either defending ourselves, becoming defensive, or we are simply beating ourselves up. And in either of these cases, Christ is not present. We are inviting Christ to do the work of examination. And second thing I want to say is that there is no right way to do this. Journaling is not good. Uh, journaling is good, but it's not for everyone. It's not good for me. I think that's where I was trying to say. Um, I would love to love it, uh, but I don't. Richard Foster, again, in his book on prayer, uh, uses the example of how there's a season in his life where he would go out at the end of the day and throw up baskets in his basket, his little driveway basketball court. And at that time, exam uh, invite God to examine his conscience. Uh, and perhaps for you, it might be it might be journaling, it might be throwing up basketballs in this repetitive activity, or it might be repeating the Lord's Prayer. But the point is that you are making time and you are finding a way to allow the resurrected Christ to speak to you and to speak about you. Finally, I want to ask the question, how does the understanding of resurrection as a here and now reality have implications for our mission? We've already explored this first idea that the, the present resurrection has implications for our spirituality. And we've looked at a practice. We've understood that Resurrection has an implication for um, for our ethics and how we live our ethical lives, and uh, and we've looked at a practice. And now the third question: How do we understand that the the understanding resurrection as a current reality has implications for our mission? Paul concludes his chapter on resurrection in First Corinthians fifteen by saying, "Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you." Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection of Jesus is a sign from God that bodies matter, but not just our bodies, but the bodies of others, the, in particular the bodies of those who are oppressed. And so we feed the hungry, we clothe the naked, and we work for the cause of justice. 
a few weeks ago as we were as we were going through Philippians chapter 2 Craig took us through the beautiful Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2 and he helped us understand that the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus was completely within the nature of God and it was an act of divine uh, an act of divine giving and divine generosity in the second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth he appeals to them to collect money for the suffering church in Jerusalem and in doing so he uses language similar to what we find in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes in um, to the church in Corinth for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. As Paul sees it the church in Corinth is to be generous precisely because God is generous to us. So understanding that um, that the resurrection of Jesus in its present as, as a present reality has implications for our mission, what is our resurrection practice? And I want to suggest that it is generosity. Just this past Saturday, Elizabeth and I and Sophia and Simon, our two youngest kids, uh, took a short road trip to visit some friends in Hagersville. Mike and Jillian live up in northwestern, um, northwestern Ontario on a First Nations reserve. Mike is a school teacher, Jillian is a social worker, they're raising a young family there. Uh, but they've been down in southern Ontario since, uh, since the beginning of COVID. Um, and just before returning, preparing to return, um, early back to, to return for the for the upcoming school year. Uh, they have to go and return north, go into self-isolation for 14 days uh, before the school year starts. We had an opportunity to go down to see them. The day before we, uh, we were heading down, which was Saturday on Friday, Jillian sends me a message and she says, you might want to take this way to Hagersville, not this way. You might want to avoid Caledonia. And if you've been following the news, you know what she's talking about. Currently in Caledonia, um, protesters from the Six Nations have occupied uh, some property that's under development, uh, a land development. They are protesting the development of this land, which they believe is rightfully theirs. And as I think about these protesters, I wonder if I am able to have a generous attitude towards them the way in which, for example, that I am able to have a generous attitude towards the people of Muskrat Dam. As someone who traveled with our team to Muskrat Dam, I found the community welcoming. I found them inviting. And it is easy for me to say that I can have a generous attitude towards these people. I can genu genuinely say that I came away with a, with a love for this community with a deep admiration for this community and a deep heart to continue to minister as a church to this community. It's easy for me to say that as a church, we are participating with Muskrat Dam in the work of reconciliation based upon past hurts of the church towards First Nations. But what about the Six Nations protesters? This question is nagging at me and I think the Lord is prodding me to process this question these people who are using aggressive means to protest, struggling to claim what they believe is rightfully theirs. Can I have a generous attitude towards them in the same way that I can have a generous attitude towards the people of Muskrat Dam? Can we as a church have a generous attitude towards the protesters of the Six Nations? 
It was helpful for me to listen to the Chief Mark Hill in his media release earlier this week, and I agree with him that we can begin by trying to understand the colonial context between, uh, behind the Caledonia crisis, to understand that the issues run much deeper than a particular housing development. And so I think a question is, can we feel both empathy for the protesters and empathy, for example, for those who have purchased home, who have put money down on the property being developed there? Can we be concerned about the forms of protest that, are, that we might deem to be illegal? And can we also be concerned about the use of force that may be used against those who are protesting? Can we have a generous attitude by praying for the protesters, praying for justice, healing and reconciliation, rather than just wishing that this issue would go away or that these protesters might be dealt with? If you are like me, this issue is uncomfortable and it's troubling. It's interesting in comparison. I live in Burlington and in Burlington right now, there are people in a particular, in, in a Millcroft neighborhood who are protesting against some development on, on a golf course. And there are people who live up on Mount Nemo who are protesting against the proposed expansion of the quarry. I can read about these, I can learn about them, but they're not troubling to me in the way that this is. And I think it's helpful to examine why. And, th and the reality is that there's something much more complex. There's something deeper at play here. And I believe that I, and I believe that we as a church, need to have a generous attitude to understand the deep pain and the deep suffering behind the protests down in Caledonia. I must be honest with you, I struggled with whether I should even kind of open this up uh, before you here this morning, but I felt the nudge to do so. And so in closing, what I want to say is, may God be gracious to me and may God be gracious to us and give us as a church wisdom and discernment as we seek to be people committed to reconciliation with our First Nations brothers and sisters so that we may have a generous attitude towards them, so that we may seek to understand their deep hurt and their deep pain. The resurrection is a past event that we celebrate. And not only that, we have a future hope for our own resurrection, when as the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2 says, every knee will bow before Jesus. A time when we will experience complete reconciliation with all people and with all of creation. And the resurrection is a present reality, something made possible only through the broken body of Christ. So as we take communion together, as we pause and take communion together, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that it is a past historical event. We thank you for the future hope of the resurrection. And we thank you that it is a present reality. And that through the resurrection, we can have hope. We can, we can trust in you to, to help us to know our way forward. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.